You're listening to WJMSRadio.com, where radio is reimagined. The Fired Up Show starts right now. And good afternoon, good Monday, Labor Day afternoon, everybody, and welcome, welcome to Fired Up, right here on WJMSRadio.com, where radio is reimagined. This is Steve. I host the show each week, and we uh, dive into the political machine here in this country and discuss the issues that you may or may not hear in mainstream media. We'll kick off our show, as we always do, with our update on COVID. But first, I want to bring some uh, very sad news to the WJMS listening family as well as our broadcast family. Uh, And uh, this happened, this event happened a week ago Sunday Um, unfortunately it was after my show was already uh, recorded edited packaged and loaded to the station so I couldn't bring it to you last Monday but uh, a a week ago Sunday uh, the co-host of our weekly show we out here uh, Tommy Flame um, uh, who co-hosts the show with uh, Jams, a.k.a. Jamie, a.k.a. my daughter, uh, was tragically killed in a shooting incident in Philadelphia. We don't have uh, details on the circumstances of the shooting, and the police are still investigating and looking for the uh, person or persons responsible. But um, Tommy, uh, whose, whose real name was Khalil Smith, uh, was killed uh, Sunday evening, and um, you know the the entire station, all of the the broadcasters, and you know myself included, we are so very deeply saddened by this incident, and uh, just wanted to take a few moments and kind of uh, bring you a, a little bit of what what and who Tommy was. Um, as I said, he was one half of the We Out Here show that he co-hosted with uh, my daughter, Jamie. And um, he was uh, shot and killed on Sunday night. For those that, you know, had had listened to the show, either, you know, as a regular listener uh, or you just happened upon it, uh, it was always entertaining. Uh, it was always informative, and it was, you know, very much an enjoyable show to listen to. Uh, Tommy and Jamie always brought, you know, updates on the music world and artists, and just kind of an uh, irreverent back and forth. Uh, sometimes, you know, sounding a whole lot like when you listen to siblings argue, to brother and sister arguments, um, but at the heart of it. Tommy was, you know, a, a deep and loyal supporter of WJMS. He was one of the first hosts that, uh, that got a show on the station after its launch. He actually co-hosted the launch party for WJMS that was held in Philly and, you know, was also just a, a huge and stalwart personal friend to Jamie. Uh, he walked with us in support of, of her uh, cancer battles and you know the Lung Cancer Research Foundation walk in New York a few years ago and you know he, he was always um, you know a, an outspoken uh, member of the WJMS family um, I had the pleasure of you know being a guest on their show on a couple of occasions and it, it always, their show always, and when I listened to it, always was something that would make me, me laugh, um, you know, would, would make me go, hmm, uh, or would sometimes trigger my dad overprotective reflex when he and Jamie would get into one of their little back and forths, um, you know, but, but that was part of the magic of the show. Uh, the truth is, is that, you know, as I said, he was not only one of the original uh, hosts when WJMS was launched, um, he really was a, a true uh, friend to Jamie and a true believer in the mis- mission and message of WJMS. 
Uh, in addition, you know, sadly, he leaves uh, behind uh, two young children, as well as, you know, uh, parents and family and, and cousins and nieces, nephews, etc., that will share in the, the sorrow and share in just missing him as being a part of, you know, the, the day to day of life. Um, you know, obviously, you know, my heart goes out to his children. My heart goes out to his family. Um, I, I, you know, hold them in prayers. Um, and, you know, still even, you know, a week later trying to, to deal with um, the, the missing part uh, of WJMS that was Tommy Flame. You know, he was a multi-talented, um, multi, you know, work person. Uh, he was not only a show host on our station, he was an entrepreneur. He was a music producer. He was, you know, a, a, a uh, talent producer. He, he worked with the Philadelphia Eagles organization in their security uh, department. And I learned in, in talking with Jams that he also was a, uh, a wrestler. So, you know, just a multifaceted uh, individual who was always a joy to talk to, was always a joy to listen to, guaranteed to make you laugh, guaranteed to tick you off and make you mad at him. Uh, but at the end of the day, um, he was a real dear friend of the station uh, and, you know, a, a first in line, stand shoulder to shoulder uh, with Jamie. Um, you know, he just will be so sorely missed in our circle and you know I, I don't know if anyone could step into his shoes and and fill that spot uh, so you know just a, as we think about Tommy as we think about you know his his legacy and his memory um, we will you know keep him in our hearts keep him in our thoughts and know that although he may be gone from us here um, as you know was often said, as they said each week at the close of the show, um, the, the phrase was, we out here. So, Tommy, we know you're out there. We know you're listening. We miss you. Godspeed. Rest in peace. And I can think of no better way to, uh, to end uh, a tribute to Tommy than to uh, end it with the phrase that uh, he and Jams used every week to close out their show. So, Tommy, rest in peace. T, hit him with the brakes. We out here. All right. And moving along from that, let's get into our show. As always, we start off the show with our update on COVID. And uh, this week we are at 39.9 million cases. Uh, 648.2 thousand people have died from the disease. And 372 and a half million people have been vaccinated. Uh, the vaccination rates have actually been going up over the past weeks uh, as the Delta variant continues to uh, grow and surge around the country in several areas are, are seeing levels of infection that rival what we went through at the peak of the disease uh, you know, early this year uh, and, and continue hospital beds and ICU units uh, in many, many areas of the country are nearing maximum capacity, if not already in maximum capacity. And I spoke about this on last week's show when I talked about people with other diseases, you know, whether it's, you know, uh, coronary failures or other COVID diseases who are not able to be treated because there are no ICU beds available. Uh, so the, the overwhelming majority of people uh, who are occupying ICUs and, and ventilators right now are those people who either or who were unvaccinated or refused to wear their mask or, you know, in, in other ways just defied what the medical world and the scientific world has been telling us now for almost two years uh, about what we need to do to protect ourselves from COVID. So, you know, it is all about, as I, as I talked about last week, 
all about choices and the choices we make and the ramifications of those choices. And what we're seeing is, you know, 98% of ICU beds uh, in, in, in areas of this country uh, are being occupied by people who flaunted the recommendations uh, for protecting yourself against COVID. Um, and I, I won't get into, because I've already, I've already ranted about that in other shows. I'm not going to re rehash that rant. Um, you all know how I feel about that. So, you know, it is uh, a lot of news going on this week, but I want to focus this week's show on probably the, the biggest story that has been uh, orbiting around. And, you know, I say that in full realization of all of the the news that's been out and about about the end to the Afghan war and the pullout of U.S. troops. Um, you know, we may touch on that as you know, more information comes out in coming weeks. But um, I really wanted to spend the majority of this show talking about news that came out of, you know, one of my favorite states, Texas. You're back on my list again this week. Um, this, uh, this week, the Texas legislature passed a uh, wide-ranging, a sweeping law uh, that was signed on the uh, 3rd of September. And what it does essentially is uh, it, for all intents and purposes, it outlaws abortion uh, in the state of Texas for any woman who is uh, more than six weeks pregnant uh, and, and does a few other things, which I'm going to talk about. But uh, this law has been all over the news lately. Uh, the reactions to it have you know, ranged from uh, the, the pro-life uh, segment of the population being very pleased with the law being passed to the anti-abortion side of the, the population being extremely upset about this law for what it does and what it creates. So let's, for those of you who, for whatever reason, um, may not have been paying attention um, there was an article in Politico that came out on September 3rd, uh, and it, it synopsizes the law, I think, very well. Uh, and it, it talks about how uh, the conservative wing of the Supreme Court, uh, in a ruling or in a decision, rather, uh, let, to let stand this Texas law to go into effect without addressing it, without uh, making any determinations on its constitutionality uh, or legality for that matter. Um, the law, uh, among other things, uh, says that private citizens can sue for $10,000 anyone who performs, aids or abets an abortion on a fetus that has a detectable heartbeat. Uh, according to the article, uh, and it's important to note that this decision does not overturn uh, Roe v. Wade, the, the settled law that uh, gave constitutional protection to a woman's right to have an abortion. Um, and it also does not impact the decision that um, many believe actually sets the mechanics of how Roe v. Wade works, which is called uh, Casey versus Planned Parenthood. And if you've been listening to the news, you will hear alternatively mentioned, you know, the, the Roe decision or the Casey decision. So the, um, the decision that was handed down uh, by the Supreme Court this week uh, was all about whether or not a federal court had the ability to enjoin uh, or block uh, the Texas law from going into effect until the merits of the law could be settled in court. Now, what does that mean? Uh, in, in some instances, uh, when the Supreme Court or when an appeals court blocks a law, uh, they may block it as a result of an active lawsuit that's brought or because the 
the law as it is written is so blatantly uh, unconstitutional, they will block it uh, on, on those grounds even before an active case has been brought uh, whereby the law could be tested against the, uh, the laws of the country. So, you know, the, the broad use of injunctions, as the article states, uh, is a relatively recent but increasingly common legal practice. So, you know, we're accustomed to seeing courts block even potentially unconstitutional laws during the period after the law is passed and before it goes into effect. And, you know, it, they cite an example that said back in 2015, a federal court, uh, a federal judge rather, enjoined President Barack Obama's uh, Secretary of Homeland Security from implementing its Deferred Action for Parents of Americans program, a.k.a. DACA. And in 2018, a different federal judge enjoined uh, former President Trump's Secretary of Homeland Security from terminating the, uh, the DACA program. So, you know, and, and, you know, the article says, let's consider this in the context of the Texas law. The Texas law does not criminalize abortion. It allows a private person to, sh to sue an abortion provider and recover civil damages. So what that means is when an abortion provider uh, sued to stop uh, the law from going into effect, the question has always been, whom were they going to bring the lawsuit against? The Texas Attorney General and Governor the people who normally get sued in state abortion restriction cases weren't parties to any of these federal lawsuits. What does that mean? They are not the people who are, are enacting, uh, enforcing, or enabling this. Um, so they couldn't be sued in this case. In the end, the abortion providers decided to sue a state judge, arguing that he, the state judge, was a state actor that could be enjoined from presiding over the civil cases and using the power of the state to enforce the $10,000 reward. So to, to have a better understanding kind of the complexity um, of this law and the complexity that it creates uh, for such time as you know, a, a suit is brought under this law in Texas, you need to kind of have a grasp of, of some of the background. First of all, understand that this is not a criminal lawsuit that's being brought. If they were being sued for violating um, the, the constitutional protections, i.e. Uh, Roe v. Wade and Casey, then that would be a criminal lawsuit. And, you know, the, the architects and... and um, people in, in charge of bringing or, or defending that action would be the governor and the secretary of state. This, on the other hand, is a civil action. This law will create civil lawsuits which uh, don't have to uh, follow the strict rules of the Constitution and, and the protections that the Constitution offers in such cases as lawsuits and therefore can be much more wide-ranging and much more uh, general in the approach. Uh, the question at hand that the Supreme Court was faced with was whether a federal court can enjoin, and remember enjoin means block, a state judge from overseeing a state civil trial based on a state law, which is a complicated legal question. Uh, states themselves are immune from suit under the 11th Amendment of the Constitution. But in 1908, the Supreme Court held that a plaintiff could get an injunction against an enforcing state officer when that person was violating the U.S. Constitution. The question for the Supreme Court was, are state judges the enforcers of the Texas law? And as I said, this is uh, it sounds like a very simple question, but it is actually very complicated and, you know, puts into juxtaposition the rights of the state, uh, as in Texas, uh, versus, you know, federal uh, criminal statutes and, and the Constitution. So, you know, in, in a sense, this law has been crafted to detour around the the Constitution or the, the protections or 
uh, remedies that are available under the Constitution by taking this through the civil route. Um, you know, this, this legal ambiguity, as the article states, was precisely the point. Uh, after decades of passing myriad state abortion restrictions only to have them enjoined in federal courts and never go into effect, the anti-abortion movement's um, legal wing came up with this idea as a way to get around the problem. By their way of thinking, if there were, if there were no one to enjoin, then they could get past the first hurdle further than any so-called heartbeat bill had ever made. Uh, it was a hypothetical uh, a law student might expect in their constitutional law final exam. And the Texas legislature was happy to go along because for years, Republican politicians have been able to signal their anti-abortion bona fides by signing on to these types of bills without any real concern that the law would actually go into effect. Uh, they are now the dogs that caught the car, uh, which explains why so few Republicans have been out in the media cheering on the result. So let, let's look at that for a second. Um, what they're saying here is uh, over the years, Republicans have signed on to these anti-abortion uh, bills uh, submitted in state legislatures, knowing full well that it would end up before you know, or end up in the court process, you know, through the appeals courts and potentially up to the Supreme Court and would likely be struck down because on its face it was it was blatantly uh, unconstitutional as it violated both Roe and Casey. Um, and they they could yet go to their constituents and say, yes, I stood up against the the uh, abortion lobby. I voted for this anti-abortion bill and, you know, kind of as a side in a low voice saying, yeah, but the Supreme Court didn't didn't pass it. They shut it down. But they were they were out front. They were on board with the effort to stop this law. Um, you know, and as we talk about on this show so often, you know, just another form, another type of the political games that get played. Um, so that that was kind of the the process in the past that these laws would be proposed you know they would be passed by conservative or anti-abortion majorities in whatever uh, state house chamber was was addressing them it would go to the governor of that state that governor would sign it it would get challenged in court it would go through appeal go all the way up to supreme court and get shot down in flames um, but, you know, it still gave the Republican legislatures at the state level the ability to stand up and say, yes, but we stood up for this law, uh, even though they knew full well that it would never pass uh, constitutional muster. Um, in, in the end, as the article continues, and in an unsigned opinion, a majority of justices held that, quote, federal courts enjoy the power to enjoin individuals tasked with enforcing laws, but not the laws themselves, end quote. And as a result, they did not enjoin the state judge. But they also said that the decision was emphatically, quote, not based on any conclusion about the constitutionality of Texas law and in no way limits other procedurally proper challenges to the Texas law, including in Texas state courts, end quote. And what that means is that uh, although they are not going to make a judgment on it, they are not precluding that someone else, you know, within the state um, may take this up in the courts and move it forward through the courts. And, you know, it will likely uh, end up before the Supreme Court down the road. So uh, the article goes on to give even a deeper background going into um, where Roe v. Wade, uh, the first case to recognize the constitutional right to an abortion, where that came from, what the, the impetus was, you know, and it came out of a Pennsylvania law that required married women, married women to seeking abortions to notify their husbands. Um, and that part was actually struck down in the Casey versus Planned Parenthood uh, lawsuit and decision but that decision also upheld 
the parts that require parental notification for minors and a 24-hour waiting period for women seeking an abortion. Uh, in, in doing so, as the article states, the court lowered the test for state restrictions from Roe's very high one and created a new standard called the undue burden standard that would strike down a state law that had the purpose or effect of placing a substantial obstacle in the path of a woman seeking an abortion uh, for a non-viable fetus. Um, you know, there is a, and as the article concludes, paragraph, there's no question that the Texas law is an undue burden under that definition. And again, why it is so likely that, you know, once this law is challenged in court, uh, this law will most likely, and most legal pundits are agreeing, that it will never survive the argument and that it will be, in fact, struck down. But in the meantime, until that happens, um, you know, there are now uh, people out there who are you know, using all kinds of tactics, including surveillance and, and you know, shadowing people and, and so on and so forth, uh, looking to find people who are providing abortions or, you know, aiding people in getting abortions. And the conversation has even included that, you know, the potential that an Uber driver could be uh, sued under this law in Texas for driving um, a woman to a, an abortion clinic to have an abortion that is determined to be beyond the six-week threshold, uh, thereby sub um, subjecting that Uber driver to the $10,000 penalty uh, without the ability to, for, the, for them to reclaim any legal fees in their defense. And it is that portion of this law which, in my opinion, and you know, obviously I am not a lawyer, uh, I did not go to law school, and you know, in my layperson opinion, it is that part of the law which is the most dangerous. Uh, and what do I mean by that? Well, it provides a blueprint, and they discuss this in the article. It uh, provides a blueprint for any other state that wants to infringe on constitutional rights. And they give an example, uh, you know, New York can pass a law allowing its citizens to sue anyone in the state who sells someone a firearm. California could create a damages award for $50,000 for anyone who sees anyone preying on public land. Uh, and, you know, and, and the, the number of case types that this could apply to is, is nearly endless. Um, so, you know, there's a dangerous precedent here. Uh, and it, it is something that we, the voters, and we, the, the public, uh, no matter your, your views on abortion, either pro or against, um, from the standpoint of the floodgate of potential lawsuits and infringements on privacy rights and, you know, oversteps and all of that, that this can create, this is something that we should be very concerned about and be paying very close attention to. So, you know, our, our call to action there is for us to, you know, get in educated, get informed on this Texas law, on the mechanics of it, not just the politics of it, and make sure we can recognize when such actions are being considered in our own states uh, and take appropriate action uh, against that. So, you know, we will, we will take our first break here. When we come back on the other side of the break, we're going to continue our discussion on the Texas law and get into a few more details of it and some of the impacts, you know, as I've, I started here, beyond just abortion that this law can create. You're listening to Fired Up right here on WJMSRadio.com, where radio is reimagined. This is Steve. We'll be right back after the break. I'm United States Surgeon General Jerome Adams, America's doctor. And all across our nation, we've taken steps together to slow the spread of coronavirus. Now we must continue to take personal responsibility to protect ourselves and our loved ones. Because even though not all of us risk a severe case of coronavirus, we all risk getting it and spreading it to others, maybe without even realizing that we're sick. So if we want to get back to school, back to work, back to worship, and back to overall health, there are things our country needs to do. We need to follow state and local guidelines, take extra precautions if at higher risk, wash our hands frequently, stay six feet from others when we can, 
And when we can't stay six feet from others, please, I'm begging you, wear a face covering. These small actions will make a big difference. So I'm asking you to say it with me, America. Coronavirus stops with me. You can learn more at coronavirus.gov. Produced by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services at taxpayer expense. And welcome back to Fired Up right here on WJMSRadio.com, where radio is reimagined. Uh, We're talking about the impacts of the newly passed Texas law uh, that uh, empowers individuals under the the civil code to um, enforce an anti-abortion ruling in the state. Um, I, I mentioned in the first segment that other states, you know, are looking at this and there are other cases that uh, are coming up to the Supreme Court or will come up to the Supreme Court. Uh, one of them coming out of Mississippi that even goes even further at, at an outright ban of abortions, period. Uh, we're going to talk about that law uh, probably in an upcoming show. I will look at bringing that out in next week's show. Uh, Because that could be another full show discussion just on that law alone. But I wanted to get back to discussion here on the law in Texas. And as I mentioned uh, near the end of the first segment, uh, other states are going to be furiously looking at this law and reading it to look at the details and the mechanics of it to see how they might uh, impose their own restrictions on uh, abortions and the availability of abortions uh, to women in their state. Uh, And uh, an article uh, that came out also last week describes, among other things, the reactions of the uh, dissenters on the Supreme Court. And, you know, this decision came squarely down um, political lines with the conservative members of the court voting in favor and the liberal members of the court uh, voting opposed. Uh, and the uh, dissenters wrote their opinions as well in this uh, unsigned decision. Uh, and probably Justice Sotomayor's uh, was among the most scathing, and I'll get to that in a second. But as I mentioned, other states you know, will be looking at this, and Florida is wasting no time. Uh, Florida's already considering a copycat of the Texas abortion law. Uh, Similar legislation in the vein of Texas abortion ban is reportedly in the works uh, in the Sunshine State, according to a political reporter at a local NBC affiliate. Uh, This isn't a surprise, though. Governor uh, Ron DeSantis, a Republican of Florida, vowed during his gubernatorial campaign in 2018 to sign legislation to ban abortions after, quote, after a fetal heartbeat is detected, close quote. Last year, DeSantis quietly signed a controversial bill that requires parental consent before uh, minors can have abortions. And if you remember in the the Casey decision, um, one of the things that was upheld is the 24-hour notice, but one of the things that was tossed out was the uh, parental consent element uh, in the Casey uh, uh, suit. Um, Also, President Biden... Um, really has weighed in and he torched the Supreme Court for unleashing, uh, quote to his words, unconstitutional chaos. Uh, and the article cites, in a statement, President Biden deemed the Supreme Court's overnight ruling an unprecedented assault on a woman's constitutional rights under Roe v. Wade. By allowing a law to go into effect that empowers private citizens in Texas to sue health care providers family members supporting a woman exercising her right to choose after six weeks or even a friend who drives her to a hospital or clinic, it unleashes unconstitutional chaos and empowers self-anointed enforcers to have devastating impacts. Uh, While acknowledging the immediate impact of the Supreme Court's ruling, Biden said that he directed his administration's Gender Policy Council and the Office of White House Counsel to launch a whole-of-government effort to respond to the court's decision, which entails looking at what the Department of Health and Human Services and the Department of Justice can do to ensure that women in Texas have access to safe and legal abortions under Roe. And as I mentioned, uh, Supreme Court Justice Sotomayor uh, wrote a furious dissent 
and you know the article cites uh, elements of it here saying that uh, her anger almost rising off the page of her written dissent it's worth reading the whole thing and the article contains it and I will uh, post these articles to the Facebook page uh, you know prior to the airing of this show so they will be available to you but she absolutely wallops the Texas lawmakers for crafting the law to evade judicial review and flays her conservative colleagues for rewarding them for doing it and you know it, it pulls out a few key quotes uh, from Justice Sotomayor uh, the first one, quote, Last night the Supreme Court silently acquiesced in a state's enactment of a law that flouts nearly 50 years of federal precedence. Today the court belatedly explains that it decided to grant relief because of procedural complexities of the state's own invention. Quote, The act is clearly unconstitutional under existing precedents. Uh, in effect, the Texas legislature has deputized the state's citizens as bounty hunters, offering them cash prizes for civilly prosecuting their neighbors' medical procedures. Today, the court finally tells the nation that it declined to act because, in short, the state's gambit worked. Uh, you know, and you know, it, it goes on to provide additional information, but one other thing that she points out is that you know, one thing we can't forget is about the role that race plays in this decision. And she goes on, and, and the article goes on and cites, the racial divide between the people this law impacts and those it doesn't is a key component of this ruling and its consequences. Uh, as was pointed out yesterday, women of color and low-income women will bear the brunt of this law due to disproportionately high pregnancy-related health risks and fewer resources to travel out of state to obtain an abortion out of state. Uh, systemic racism puts extra barriers in front of access to reproductive health care for black women who account for 28% of all abortions in the United States. These facts couple with some electoral math. Uh, white Texans, including white women, help this ban become a reality by throwing a majority of their support behind former President Trump, who ended up picking three Supreme Court justices who voted to allow the ban. In 2018 and 2020, Governor uh, Greg Abbott in 2018 also did the same thing. It highlights how race is inextricably tied to the abortion fight. Um, so, you know, a as I said, you know, and I think this, this excerpt points it out quite clearly, the Texas law basically is deputizing the citizens of the state of Texas uh, to become bounty hunters to, you know, either, you know, and, and I think what we are going to see coming down the pike from this is we're going to see an increasing number of people, you know, orbiting around uh, the, the few remaining uh, women's health centers uh, that provide abortion services, uh, taking license plates, you know, and so forth to identify people seeking uh, the services at these facilities and, you know, going after them in hopes of claiming a, a $10,000 bounty. And the, the sad truth of it is uh, some organizations are already beginning actions to, uh, to, to feed the pipeline of these uh, civil lawsuits uh, one that's mentioned in the article is uh, Texas Right to Life, the biggest anti-abortion organization in the state. Uh, they plan to start use a uh, story. I'm sorry to start suing those believe uh, those they believe have violated uh, SB 8, which is the the title of the law. The organization has even set up a whistleblower website where anyone can file anonymous tips about illegal abortions. Uh, and, you know, there was a, a, a tweet that went viral back in August uh, that brought attention to the websites, leading thousands of people from around the world to flood it with fraudulent tips. Uh, the director of the Texas Right to Life group said the website is still up, but he appreciated the publicity uh, the website received from the tweet. Um, the, the thing here is, and there's another point to this, is that the person bringing the suit 
doesn't even have to reside in Texas. So, you know, if a, a relative uh, from outside the state uh, learns of a relative that lives within Texas who, you know, violates the tenets of SB 8, they can uh, bring suit even from outside the state uh, against their relative or against an individual uh, who, you know, was seeking, you know, an abortion beyond the, the presets of SB 8. Um, you know, and th this article goes on to talk about even if the Supreme Court were to block the law after September 1st, um, the, the director said that abortion providers could still be held legally accountable for abortions performed after the law took effect, but before the high court acted. So as, as it may take, you know, um, months and, you know, weeks or months for a case to rise to the docket of the Supreme Court, uh, there potentially could be, you know, many, you know, dozens, you know, or, or hundreds of these lawsuits uh, making their way through the courts uh, toward, you know, some type of resolution. And, you know, these lawsuits, you know, which some may be determined to be frivolous, are very concerning to providers and doctors as they worry that these lawsuits could financially ruin them and their employees. Individuals who file lawsuits under SB 8 don't have to provide a personal connection to whomever they sue. That's an important point. Um, Texas Right to Life does not plan on filing frivolous lawsuits. Um, you know, and you know, this is a continuation of actions that have been taken in Texas over the past decade, the Texas legislature has attempted several uh, big swings to eliminate access to abortion. According to Ken White, a professor of social work at the University of Texas at Austin and an investigator for the Texas Policy Evaluation Project. House Bill 2, a 2013 measure that was eventually struck down by the Supreme Court, required abortion clinics to meet specific hospital standards and that action shrunk the number of abortion clinics in Texas from more than 40 to 19 by 2016. Uh, and then when the pandemic began, Governor Greg Abbott's executive order banning all non-medically necessary surgeries effectively banned abortion and was the subject of litigation for weeks. During that time, there was a 12-factor increase in the number of patients seen in uh, at the Colorado Planned Parenthood of the Rocky Mountains, one of the nearest abortion clinics outside of Texas. A separate bill, currently under consideration by state lawmakers, Senate Bill 4, would prevent physicians or providers giving abortion-inducing medications to patients who are more than seven weeks pregnant. The implementation of SB 8 uh, would shoot a, quote, large hole in the protection offered by Roe v. Wade, close quote, according to Lawrence Gostin, a professor of constitutional law at Georgetown University. Uh, most women who, in Texas who can afford it will get their abortions out of state, uh, Gostin said, but for poor and rural women, the effects on their physical and mental health could be devastating. Uh, the article also cites the story of one woman whose name is Elsie, who asked that her last name be, be withheld because she fears harassment, said she was a graduate student at the University of Texas when she received an abortion four years ago and was six weeks pregnant at the time. She said if SB 8 had been in place then, she might not have been able to have the procedure. And her quote was, it would have changed the entire trajectory of my life, and I wouldn't be where I am today, she said. So, you know, this law uh, is and will have some very wide-ranging impacts across uh, a large sector of the female population, you know, in Texas. And as I mentioned earlier, if it is, you know, uh, mirrored, adopted, and copied in other states, uh, this could become you know, a, a regional, uh, you know, a, a segment of the United States um, issue that, you know, will just create, as, as some have said, a constitutional chaos in this country as the courts deal with these, you know, myriad number of lawsuits that are going to be brought, uh, some of which, you know, are 
you know, going to be frankly frivolous, but they're all going to have to be dealt with. And keep in mind, if you are a provider, if you are a clinic, if you are an Uber driver, um, you know, and you are sued under this, you have to defend yourself. And that's going to involve, uh, in, in probably all cases, if not most cases, hiring an attorney and, you know, expenses of a legal defense against a lawsuit, which could be substantial. And, you know, many people, not, ev- not even considering the, the women who this law will affect, there are going to be many more, um, you know, victims, you know, in, in a collateral fashion who are going to be, you know, severely impacted by this, you know, and, you know, that, that is something else uh, to keep in mind. So the, the impacts of this law are very wide-reaching. It, it, it should not be minimized that the, the statement that I just presented in, in the article I just cited uh, that talked about, uh, you know, uh, women who are, are of sufficient means, that is, uh, ability to afford the travel and stay and the medical procedure and so forth, can still get, you know, post-six-week abortion services provided out of state in states where, you know, such a law as SB 8 does not exist. Uh, However, for, you know, women who are poor, who can't afford to travel, uh, who can't afford perhaps to stay in a hotel for, you know, a time frame that could be up to a week um, between counseling and the appointments and waiting periods and, you know, post-operative recuperations, um, you know, they are, are stuck out in, you know, the wilderness, no pun intended, um, because they can't afford to go where uh, a service that is, you know, is wanted could be performed. And, you know, there are some other elements to this law that, you know, have not uh, been discussed as far as I have heard uh, in the media one of these is that the SB8 law does not provide any exceptions for uh, victims of rape or victims of incest who end up becoming pregnant. Uh, it does not take into account what medical science has, has said that at the six-week stage, uh, it is uh, nearly impossible to detect a fetal heartbeat because at six weeks of development, uh, a fetus does not yet have a heart. Uh, so what you may hear, in, in, and I've, I've seen this reported um, from a, at least one or, one or more medical professionals, is it enti- is entirely likely that you are hearing you know, the electric activity uh, of the fetus itself and that can be mistaken as the sound of a, quote, heartbeat, close quote. Um, the, the other element to, to uh, be concerned here, you know, goes back to what I said about cases of incest or rape. If, you know, you are a woman and you are raped or you are the victim of incest and you are in Texas, um, if, if it has been more than six weeks, you will not be able to terminate that pregnancy. You are thereby required by the law to carry that child to term and deliver it. Now, you know, that in, in, you know, could be construed as adding you know, insult to injury in that this, this pregnancy itself the result of a highly uh, traumatic uh, turn of events uh, would force a woman to carry uh, this child to term. Um, and, you know, then once the child is born, the, the options obviously would be whether or not to place the child up for adoption or to raise this child. And, you know, it would subject the woman not only to the expense of um, raising a child once it's born, but it would subject them to the the medical expenses of the pregnancy itself. Um, and, you know, as I said, there is no exception under this law 
for those situations. Additionally, in those cases where a pregnancy is not normal, uh, such as the case of, of a tubal pregnancy, um, which, if allowed to continue, uh, actually becomes life-threatening. The law is not explicitly clear on cases of allowing post-six-week terminations where the life of the mother may be at stake. Uh, that uh, is, is yet, uh, as far as I can tell in my reading of the literature and the materials, um, that is still a, an open question. Um, you know, and it, it just is you know, so, so draconian in its treatment of the fact that you know, these women are, are being required to continue something that you know, is, is not something that they want to continue with. And under the constitutional protections of Roe v. Wade, as reinforced by Casey, um, and an abortion beyond six weeks uh, up to the, the stated limits of the Roe and Casey doctrines uh, would still be allowed. Uh, those remedies are not available uh, in Texas unless you take into account the risk of, you know, one, being sued, and two, you know, the, the potential that the providers uh, as well can be sued and the expenses and cost of legal protection for that. Um, so, you know, while this, this law is, you know, a, a very bad uh, for society in general, for women in particular, there are some, some very, very severe penalties that will be faced um, by, you know, children that are born out of, you know, compliance with this law, you know, not the least of which is for, you know, the number of children that, you know, would be placed up for adoption, uh, you know, because the mother was a victim of, of you know, rape or incest. Uh, what will become of these children? They will go into the state adoption systems and, you know, that's going to be a cost to the taxpayers of the state. Uh, there are already, you know, in Texas, there are already likely many thousands of children who are on, you know, adoption waiting lists uh, from, you know, infants all the way up to, you know, mid-teenagers. Uh, and these new additions to that list will just make that situation worse. Uh, will put additional strains on the adoption systems, you know, in the state of Texas. You know, there, as I've, I said at the top, um, this law uh, just opens up so many cans of worms um, that the, the, the last point I want to make is, is a little bit of statistics here. I did some research and I found that in the Texas state legislature, there are a total of 150 state House members and uh, 31 state senators. Of the 150 state congresspeople, uh, 25% or 38 of them are female. Of the state senators, 26% of state senators or 10 uh, are female. So out of the total of 180 state legislatures, 26% or, you know, clearly one in four of them is a female. Now, the, the vote itself uh, passed the Senate uh, by a vote of 81 to 63. And it passed, I'm sorry, passed the House, 81 to 63. The vote passed the Senate, uh, 18 in favor, 12 opposed. Um, I can only assume, and I will, will do additional research uh, and, and bring my results, you know, back in the subsequent show, you know, for next week's show, that uh, hopefully the majority of those in opposition included the, the female legislatures in the state house and state senate. Um, I, I would be shocked to see if a female legislator would, would vote in favor uh, due to party loyalty or, or so forth 
in such a, you know, against self-interest or against the interest of women in general, a uh, piece of legislation in their state. I will will dive into the, the voting record and, and find that out. Um, and, you know, I will will continue to research and post the results to the Facebook page. And we'll touch on those uh, in tomorrow in next week's Fired Up show. But, you know, it logic would say to me that, you know, it would it, it should be highly unlikely that a woman would vote to enable such restrictions on the women in their state uh, that they are uh, elected to represent. Um, you know, it, it's this law is just already creating such turmoil and chaos. And as I said, as as we we wrap to conclusion here, um, it is highly likely that once brought before the Supreme Court, you know, specifically that this law will be struck down. But in the meantime, there's a lot of you know, personal damage and tragedy that can be done uh, for women, for healthcare providers, uh, for these clinics that do more than just provide abortion services. Uh, these clinics are, you know, primary health facilities for women's health, and there are more elements to, you know, women's health than just abortion. Um, you know, and, you know, the, the collateral impacts to those caught up by the the deputized uh, citizens of Texas uh, forming their posses going out and identifying people who may or may not have supported you know uh, a woman's right to to receive an abortion never mind the fact that how they gain that medical information uh, potentially could be a violation of HIPAA law which prohibits medical professionals from divulging patient health information to third parties. Um, so, you know, there, there may come some legal questions as to how that information was obtained in the first place. Uh, so, you know, it, it's going to be um, interesting, um, and, and I say that, you know, very dishearteningly, um, to see how this law plays out in the coming weeks and months uh, in the state of Texas. Uh, but I urge you, you know, for our call to action, uh, keep track of your state legislators. Look at and look for discussions of similar legislation that may be coming up, you know, in your state. And remember, as I said, it may, you know, this may open the door for other restrictions you know, whether it is, you know, second, second Amendment rights on the sale of guns, you know, to legitimate gun owners. It may come up on, you know, all kinds of protected actions that we now take for granted under our Constitution. So our diligence is definitely uh, called for here and required here. So we'll, we'll wrap this week's show on that. This is a subject I'm sure we are going to be talking about again and again. So please stay tuned. Please continue to listen. As always, please stay safe out there. Please get yourself vaccinated if you have the opportunity against the COVID-19 virus. Uh, we are still seeing, you know, surges in, in the Delta variant. Uh, please, you know, follow the scientific and medical guidance. Please stay safe. And as always, if you have comments or questions, send an email to firedupradio at yahoo.com. If you want to weigh in on, on the Texas law, please send an email to the show. I'd love to see your comments, pro and con, uh, on this. And as always, uh, I look forward to talking with all of you again. Thank you for listening, and I will speak to you all again in seven days. message 
Wherever you stand, I'm calling every woman, calling every man. We're the generation we can't afford to wait. The future started yesterday, and we're already.